Welcome everyone, this is Sasha on Moving Mountains. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Helen Caldicott, physician, author, and speaker. She is the author and editor of eight books, including Nuclear Madness, Missile Enemy, and most recently, Sleepwalking to Armageddon. She has been the recipient of many awards and honorary degrees, the subject of three award-winning documentary films, and was named one of the 20th century's most influential women by the Smithsonian Institution. She makes her home nowadays in her native Australia. Welcome to Moving Mountains, Dr. Caldicott. Uh, thank you very much. You are the author of the book Sleepwalking to Armageddon, and it came out about four and a half years ago, but it forecasts a lot of the realities that are unfolding today with the Russia and the Ukraine war at the moment. Taking a step back in your profession, you are a physician of pediatric. Specialized in cystic fibrosis. Yes, I started the first cystic fibrosis clinic in Australia at the Adelaide Children's Hospital under stiff opposition from my colleagues. And it now has the best longevity results in Australia. And I learned a lot from my mentor at Harvard, Dr. Harry Schwachman, who is a pioneer in the treatment of cystic fibrosis. At what point in your career path were you introduced to the side effects of radiation that you started speaking and educating audiences on that? Well, first year of medicine, I was only 17 and I had a wonderful biology lecturer called Peter Martin. And he told us about the experiments where Drosophila fruit fly were irradiated and their offspring developed crooked wings and abnormal bodies. And I knew then that radiation is terribly dangerous for genes and can produce genetic disease and also cancer. So I've known since I was 17. It's just part of my medical education. At the same time, when did you become very proactive about taking a stand against nuclear arms? Well, um, I became active um, when the French were testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific Islands, and I got a message to... to tell me that the water in Adelaide, where I lived, was radioactive from the fallout. And I wrote a letter to the local paper, which they didn't print. So I rang the editor and persuaded him to print it. That night I was on television talking about children getting leukemia from drinking cow's milk containing strontium-90 and cesium-137 and the like. And I didn't know, but the Australians don't like the French. They think they're arrogant. And the Australians were very, very annoyed. <laughs> And there were spontaneous marches in the city streets every weekend, you know, thousands of people with babies on their shoulders saying, I don't want to get leukemia from French tests. There were whole pages of the letters letters to the editor. And finally, I mean, people stopped buying French wine, French perfume, French cheeses. And eventually I went to with the deputy prime minister to see the French in in the Elysee Palace. And, and the Deputy Prime Minister said, why are you doing it? And they said, well, our bombs are perfectly safe. And he said, well, if they're perfectly safe, why don't you blow them up in the Mediterranean? 
And their faces turned bright white and said, Monsieur, there are too many people living around the Mediterranean. So for the first time in my young doctorly life, I was sitting opposite wicked politicians who didn't give one goddamn if kids died of leukemia. And that was a big turning point for me. The opposition in Australia was so strong that the government was forced to take France to the International Court of Justice, which ruled against them, and they were forced to test underground. So I saw what your eminent president, Jefferson, said, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. And I suppose I've treated the population and the populace like my patient, informing them. I've practiced all my life global preventive medicine as well as uh, medicine with children with cystic fibrosis. In your speaking engagements, you reference a number of countries and locations, even within the United States, that there are nuclear sites. Now, for those that may not be aware, those nuclear sites require funding. Does this money get funneled in underground? Does it come to the politicians? Because a common civilian wouldn't know that their taxes are going to pay for this project. Well, you've got, oh, I can't remember how many nuclear power plants in America. It's up about 70 to 100. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact number. Um, there's always a risk of a meltdown, like at Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, which had an actual meltdown and uh, Fukushima, the, um, the companies that own the reactors don't pay for the insurance, which of course is huge. The government pays for it. So in other words, you, the people, through your taxes, are paying to run nuclear power plants because you're paying for the enormous amounts of insurance. Furthermore, if there is an accident like Three Mile Island, you pay through, through the neck to try and remedy or, or decommission the reactor and clean it up. So you're intimately involved in funding these death machines. For the audiences who have received an overview of your work, they may think that you may be a bit critical of the United States, but they fail to lack the understanding that you have invested a lot of time professionally and personally in the United States. And while the Americans may be quote-unquote nice people, they do lack the understanding of what are nuclear sites, what are nuclear weapons, and how it can literally wipe out part of the earth. Life on earth, nuclear war can wipe out life on earth. And I'm sad to say and sorry to say that we're closer to nuclear war than we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis, with Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons, A. B, America's pushed his back against the wall. C, I think the man is sick. Uh, and D, he may resort to using nuclear weapons, um, and then America will, and then that will destroy almost all life on the planet because a thousand nuclear weapons dropping on a hundred cities would create such enormous, enormous fires. And all the cities are full of oil refineries and uh, wood and carbon and all sorts of things that will burn, pushing, uh, pushing that toxic black smoke up to the stratosphere where it will remain for about 10 years, blocking out the sun, inducing a short ice age where we and everything else will freeze to death in the dark. It's called nuclear winter. And we're close to that. I got to know Robert McNamara, who was Jack Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, who was in the uh, Oval Office during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he said to me, Helen, you don't know how close we came to within three minutes of blowing up the planet.
and we're kind of there now. And no one knows. I mean, we are sleepwalking to Armageddon. Um, the pop, the population watch television, which is run by that evil man, Rupert Murdoch, Fox, um, you know, amusing them with all sorts of tripe and not informing them about what's actually happening. In the 80s, I uh, became quite famous because there was an agent in Hollywood called Pat Kingsley who had the film stars of Tom Cruise and Lily Tomlin and Sally Field and all of those, and she worked for me for free. And she got me in Vogue, Lifetime, Family Circle, Ladies Home Journal, and on the, all the TV shows across America. And through that medium, I was able to educate people, and that created a huge movement, the freeze movement, against nuclear weapons such that by the end of the 80s, 80% 80 of Americans were opposed to nuclear weapons, we had a huge march in, march in Central Park in New York where um, a million people came. Um, and I actually spoke in the Playboy Mansion uh, to a lot of, of a lot of film stars because Playboy was excerpting a book called With Enough Shovels. There was a man in the Federal Emergency Management Agency called T.K. Jones, and he said, don't worry, if there are enough shovels to go around, we'll all make it. So what you do as the bombs are coming and they come, they take 20, 30 minutes to go from America, uh, Russia to America and vice versa. The whole thing's over within about an hour. You get up your trusty shovel and you dig a hole, uh, you know, three feet wide, six feet long, and you get in the hole and you put two doors on top of it and do it on top of the hole and that will save you. And it was so ridiculous. So... The Playboy ma magazine was excerpting um, it from, from this book um, and Paul Newman was hosting it. I'd never met him before and I walked in and he gave me a kiss on the hand, which he's so gorgeous. And anyway, when I finished, I said to the film stars, look, go out and look up at the stars and realise that we're probably the only life in the universe and imagine what that means and what responsibility we have. Apparently, Chris Christopherson burst into tears and, and lay in my arms. But then a tall girl with long black hair came up and she said, I think you're the only person on earth who can convince my mother and father about nuclear weapons. And she was Patty Davis, Reagan's daughter. And I said, look, I'll see him, but I don't want any of his minders there alone. And we did. I had an hour and a quarter with him alone talking about nuclear weapons and nuclear war. I didn't think I'd made much impression, but after that he started to say nuclear war must never be fought and can never be won. And he ended up meeting with Gorbachev in Reykjavik in 1988 and together over a weekend, two mere mortals almost agreed to abolish nuclear weapons, but they got out, hung up on Star Wars. Reagan was thought that he could put a shield over America and the weapons would go boink, boink, boink and bounce off it. Gorbachev knew it wouldn't work, but they got stuck up on that and the ability to um, abolish nuclear weapons was lost. I mean, that's how the earth goes in the fallibility of human psyches. Would you say that attention from the anti-nuclear movement shifted because of the media's priorities in the 90s moving forward? Well, after, after you know, the Cold War ended, everyone thought, thank God that's over. 
They talked about the peace dividend, the money, the horrendous amount of money that America spends on weapons could be transferred to saving the planet from global warming and all sorts of feeding the starving children in the world. But the corporations who make the weapons, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing and all of them, they thought that was a bad idea. So they went into the newly released little countries along the border of Russia, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, and all the rest, and said, do you want to join NATO, which is really America? NATO was formed to protect Europe against Russian invasion. Well, the Cold War was over, and NATO had no use. But the little countries joined, and to join, they had to invest in millions and millions of dollars of weapons, which they did. And so it's been the military-industrial corporation, which I would say are death dealers. Their weapons kill people. In fact, America's killed a million people, innocent people, since 9-11. So they're death dealers. It's not the Department of Defence. It's the Department of Death and Murder. That's what it does. And over half your discretionary funds, your tax dollars, go into producing these weapons. Anyway, all these little countries join NATO and now they've been armed with missiles facing into, into Russia. Can you imagine what America would do if the Warsaw Pact moved into Canada all along your northern border and had missiles all along the border focusing into America? You'd blow up the world probably, like you nearly did during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I think we need to get into the other person's shoes and see what Putin's doing. Now, what he did in, in his doing is you, in Ukraine is re revolting. He's killing people. But America's killed people forever. It's called defence, but it's not. It's murder. Um, and he asked that the Ukraine not join NATO and that please would he re you remove all the weapons you've, you've put in all the little countries that have been released from the Soviet Union and have now joined NATO. And Biden said no. He could have done it. And then, you know, that would have solved it. It's, I tell you what, it's these men with their testosterone sky high, all in competition with each other, all wanting to better each other. It's, it's classic male behaviour. And yet 52% of the Earth's population are us, women. Our hormones are meant to nurture life, oestrogen, testosterone, Estrogen, oxytocin, progesterone, whereas male hormones, especially when they get angry, are meant to go into combat. So it's time we took over. And what's happened in Australia, we've just had an election and an, a large number of women now hold the balance of power, educated women, doctors, lawyers. They call themselves independents, but they ran... A, because of global warming, we're terrified about that and no one's doing anything about it. And our country is full of coal, which we export, um, and they got elected. So things have changed in Australia radically and maybe America could emulate us. I recall you referencing men's testosterone and when I was looking up the statistics on the nuclear warhead, it got me thinking that for all of the countries that make the news for the nuclear testing, do you believe that these male leaders are just doing it to mark their territory and show oh, their I think competence? Partly. Yeah, I do. <laughs> partly. It's a good question, Sasha. 
But it's like, like dogs peeing on lampposts and marking out their territory, you know. That's a, I've never thought of it like that, but that's a very good it, question. It got me thinking whether any one of them would really push that button or they just want to compete to mark their territory, putting it lightly. Well, no, because um, do you know that always walking just behind the president is an officer with a suitcase called the football in the football are the codes to start a nuclear war. And if the message comes through from the radars in space, picking up weapons coming from Russia, and they only take 30 minutes to go from where to go, he's got a three-minute decision time whether or not to launch all of your weapons. We've come so close to nuclear war in the past. The radar set off by a flock of geese or a rising moon or America launched a, a, a weather satellite near Norway that informed uh, the Russians, but the Russians lost the data. They saw this weapon go up and they thought that weapon's targeted on Moscow for a first strike because what you do when you have a nuclear war, you knock out Moscow first and then knock out all the Russian cities so Moscow can't respond. And for a while, they were very close to launching their nuclear weapons. Now, those sort of things go on continually, number one. Number two, Young boys are checking into the Pentagon via their computers and and changing the uh, weapons codes. And, you know, a 16-year-old who has a very undeveloped frontal lobe might think it was a hell of a thing to blow up the world. So we're, we're walking on tissue paper. I mean, I look out my window at my beloved garden and I wonder how it's still here or watch the clouds in the sky, which is so beautiful. We've inherited such a beautiful planet. And we've let these men, these arrogant men with testosterone overload, you know, the Pentagon talks about missile erectors, soft laydown, deep penetration, nuclear war like one big orgasmic thump in front of women with no embarrassment at all. It is... In their minds, it's a testosterone exercise. And I suppose war has always been like that, I suppose. You know, the ancient um, Greeks, you know, who went into battle and the Romans and all the rest, all through history. But there was one wonderful story that came out of Greece where the women were so fed up with the men killing each other, they stopped. They said, okay, no more sex. No more sex instead of stop it. And guess what? They stopped it. It actually worked. Why is sex so important to men anyway? <laughs> but isn't that interesting? From a talk that you gave about a decade ago, and I don't know if the outcome is still the same, that there are three decisions that you could make when for a nuclear response to attack the cities to attack the missile sites or to attack the cities and missiles. Does that still remain true? Look, I don't know because I don't have access to that very secret data, but I would think it's probably the same. I mean, every town and city in your country, the population of 50,000 people was and probably still is targeted with a nuclear weapon. There were apparently 12 nuclear weapons targeted on New York City alone, one for each bridge, bridge one for all the, for the airports, and so on and so on. Just let me 
explain what happens if a bomb drops on a city. It explodes with a heat 20 times more than the heat inside the centre of the sun. Uh, it creates a huge, huge firestorm. Everything beneath that bomb is vaporised, including concrete, marble, steel. It digs a hole three quarters of a mile wide and 800 feet deep turning all of that material to radioactive fallout in the mushroom cloud. 20 miles from that explosion, everyone's vaporised or charcoalized, turned into charcoal. There was a woman carrying her baby in Hiroshima, and that was a little bomb who'd been turned into a charcoal statue. Um, and then the fires would coalesce across America, north to south, east to west, and burn the whole country. The radiation would be so acute that the, apparently the White House has been stockpiling morphine just in case it's a nuclear war, but our hospitals will be destroyed. We'll be killed. We won't have any syringes to give it to the people, and people will die in devastating agony. Understanding that we could have stopped this evil nonsense, and that's where we are. I mean, people need to wake up. But Sasha, this talk needs to be played on Fox and on CNN and all the other all the stations, which we did in the 80s, to scare the pants off people. And people were really responsive because they love, they love their children. They want their children to survive, you know. What's the use of immunising children and making sure their teeth are well looked after if they have no future? We're at that point in time. Speaking of activism, what steps would you recommend an everyday citizen to take? Suppose, Sasha, if you go to my website, or people do, helencaldicott.com, I've written or participated in the writing of 12 books. But read Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. Read If You Love This Planet. Read Sleepwalking to Armageddon. Read Crisis Without End, which is about Fukushima, and educate yourselves, educate yourselves. An informed democracy will behave, and then you will be impelled by your psyche. You'll know what to do. You, you just will. I mean, you'll stay with your grief for quite a while, and then you'll wake up one day and, you know, you might become the leader of America. I'm not saying president, although you might run for president, but, you know, like Joan of Arc, modern-day Joan of Arc. Or John of Arc, I suppose. I recall you referencing on a few occasions that you could fix all of the problems on the planet if you became president. Yeah, you I still could. aspire to do that. Absolutely, because you know, let me give you an example. If we've got a, a patient with a very serious illness in the intensive care unit, I then would collect all specialists around one table: a nephrologist, a cardiologist the haematologist, the neurologist, and work out from all perspectives what to do about this patient. That's how we practice medicine. So if I were president on each particular problem and issue, I'd bring the absolute experts and look at it from a global preventive medicine perspective, not about power and control or, you know, we control the Pacific and the Chinese doing this, but how to make friends and influence people, how to make friends with the Chinese and work with them, how to make friends with the Russians, with their ancient, wonderful civilization, the music and the art and the ballet and the, that, that they've evolved with, um, and work with them to make friends and spend the money instead of on killing and death, on saving the planet from global warming, feeding 
thousands or millions of starving children in Yemen and elsewhere. I mean, it, it would be so simple. The money's there. The motivation in most people is there. It's just the leaders that are not doing it. And they're run by money, of course. I mean, let's face it. Most of your politicians are corporate prostitutes. They receive huge amounts of money from the military-industrial complex and they vote for them. Well, they're not voting for the people they're supposed to be representing. They're corporate prostitutes and they need to be called out on it. I'd like to address a joint session of Congress. Make them feel what it's about and make them even cry about what, what the responsibility is in the future. And referencing yep. your book, Sleepwalking to Armageddon, you were able to extract insights from nuclear scientists but because you reference some professionals being prostitutes, were all of those nuclear scientists willing to share their feedback and participate in the book? Or did you have any pushback? Not at all. No, they were thrilled to be asked. Absolutely thrilled. In fact, they know so much and are so frustrated that they can't get out the information to the average person. So they were very, very pleased to be invited to participate and to participate in the book. And you also happen to be the founder of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Are there other professions that you advocate that should also practice this? Well, a at lawyer? the time in the 80s, we had 23,000 physicians and many, many chapters, but we were emulated by psychologists for social responsibility, architects, historians. Historians said, you know, nuclear war will wipe out history. And almost all the professions developed their own organisations teaching people about the effects of nuclear war from their perspective. And it was very powerful, Sasha. It's died now, but it needs to be reformed again. One of your engagements, which I found very interesting because you also specialised in nutrition and you had commented on the side effects of radiation on food and water, in terms of importing and exporting foods, are there any countries that we need to be careful of? Yes, Japan. A lot of their food in Fukushima Prefecture, which is, which is an area where there's a lot of agriculture, is radioactive. So what they do when they get the rice, which is radioactive, they don't dilute it with non-radioactive rice. But you only need just a couple of atoms of cesium-137 that you eat in rice to lodge in a muscle or in your heart muscles, etc., And those atoms irradiate a very small volume of cells, but in each cell there's a gene that controls the rate of cell division called the regulatory gene. And if that is altered biochemically or mutated, the cell will sit dormant for any time from five to 50 years, which is called the latent period of carcinogenesis. And then one day it will start multiplying in a rapid fashion into millions and trillions of cells, and that's a cancer. So it takes one radioactive atom to mutate one gene to in a single cell to induce cancer. And the cancer doesn't identify its origin years later. It doesn't say I was, eat, I was made by some cesium. You ate in a fish caught on the Californian coast that ate some seaweed next to the Fukushima reactor in the sea and... and uh, swam to California. So in other words, these accidents are spreading cancers all, all over the place. Also, um, if you go to the Hiroshima sort of website, not Hiroshima, I'm sorry, Chernobyl, there are 
many homes containing children around Chernobyl with the most gross deformities because their mothers were irradiated when the fetuses were not fully formed, like babies who were born after the mothers took that drug, thalidomide, to prevent morning sickness. And they're born without arms or without legs. Well, those these infants are very similar. Um, and there are photographs of the children on the, on the, on the uh, Chernobyl websites. So radiation, interesting, Sasha, has produced us. Background radiation has induced mutations and the good mutations survived and the bad mutations died. And so it's survival of the fittest. So right through the history of life on Earth, from the tiny little organisms all the way through to multicellular organisms to us, um, it's survival of the fittest. The best ones to survive in the environment did. And so that produced this extraordinary species called human beings, which I think are an evolutionary aberrant because we're so intelligent that we've worked out how to destroy ourselves. But I don't think we've got the psychological capacity to understand what's going on and to stop ourselves destroying ourselves. Well, I think most women do. I'm not talking about Thatchers or those nasty women, but most women do. And the women rose up. I started Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament, which I wanted to call Women's Party for Survival. And the Americans said, oh, you can't have another party. We've only got two parties. And stupidly, I stopped it. But we do need a third party of women, women Women's Action for um, Women's um, Party for Survival. Um, how did I get onto that? <laughs> I was going to, as we start to wind down, I was going to ask if we continue at this pace of how we treat the planet, how many years do you believe we have on Earth? Well, it's a good question, Sasha. Um, it could be tomorrow. Things are so tenuous in the Ukraine and, and Putin's got thousands of nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert. And I just ex explained the explosion of one bomb on New York City one, but there are probably 12 bombs targeted on New York City. We don't know. But the same with Moscow and cities all over the world related to Russia and America. So it could happen tonight. In the world of Sasha Talks, we celebrate achievement, but also self-development. You are blessed with long life and achievement. Who has contributed to your self-development in helping you remain so steadfast and dedicated to your commitment? Nobody. Um, when I was little, I wanted to be a teacher because I loved my teachers and I thought they were doing good. Then when I was 11, and, and my heroes were Robin Hood and the Good Samaritan. They were my heroes. But one morning I got into bed with mum uh, and I was 11 and I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And she said, why? And I said, I can help more people if I'm a doctor. So no one inspired, well, I suppose the Good Samaritan inspired me and so did Robin Hood. You shared one of your stories from 9-11 and it touched upon where you shared a, 
a personal part of yourself that you said you are atheist. And it got me thinking, was that atheist born from the childhood in you? Or was it because of the work that you do? And it introduced you to the dark sides of life. My parents were agnostics. I tried to find God. I used to take, I was only a little girl. I used to dress myself up and go to Sunday school. And I went to the Methodist one and the Presbyterian one and the Church of England one looking for God but I never found him, her, or it. And being a scientist, which I am, there's nothing after life. It's just a myth that make, make people feel better because they don't want to die. That's interesting because I've always been scared of dying. It's partly why I did medicine, to start trying to have some control over my body. But, of course, it gave me lots of differential diagnoses that I could get that made me even more frightened. Now I'm nearly 84. I've lived quite an extraordinary life. Um, I've done a few things I regret. I can't go back. Um, and I, I guess I'm ready to die. If, if I have enough morphine, which will make me feel nice, and enough Beethoven and Brahms, um, I'll die in peace. Um, that's, that's how I feel now. And are there any other projects that you intend to launch I might finish my autobiography. I only wrote until, I think, 1980. And I've got a lovely grandson called Paul who is a filmmaker and he wants me to write the rest of it because he wants to make a feature film of me. And I thought, oh, Paul, I don't want to do that. And then I thought, oh, well. So I thought I might go to the public library where all my papers are deposited and get uh, my diaries from those years and try and put together something. So I might do that. Um, I'm also asked to write articles. I was just asked today to write an article for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist because of the wonderful election we've just had in Australia. So I do that sort of thing, but nothing big. Unless, unless Nancy Pelosi asked me to address the Congress and I would fly over to do that. And last piece of wisdom to share with audiences. Educate yourselves. I mean, if you really love your children... And you realize how precious life is and what an extraordinary thing is that you were created from the millions of sperm that your father created that night and that egg. What a privilege it is to be even alive. And what does that mean in terms of responsibility? And just look at a rose or smell some wisteria. Understand what an incredible place we live on and how precious it is. And then... Get on your steed like Joan of Arc and you will be impelled to do quite extraordinary things. And people have done that. I've seen it happen. Thank you, Dr. Caldecott, for sharing your insights and your wisdom. Thank you for joining us on Moving Mountains.